With me in the Scana studio today is Rock Hill native Jim Hoagland. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes in 1971. He won it for international reporting category and in 1991 for commentary. And later on in May, he and a resident of Camden, Kathleen Parker, will be televising a program on SCE-TV celebrating Pulitzer commentary. And so, Jim, welcome back to the Journal. Walter, good to see you again. You're a Rock Hill boy, came to the university, graduated in 61. Let's just back up and go back to your days growing up in Rock Hill and then coming to the university in the late 50s. Did you know when you were at, at Rock Hill High School that you wanted to be a journalist? I pretty much thought I would be a journalist. Uh, certainly, it was one of my top two or three possibilities, along with law and politics as others. Um, And I'll never forget the day that uh, my vocational counselor in high school, who was my Latin teacher as well, called me in and I'd just taken my vocational test. And she asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I probably will want to write. And she said, thank God because she had just looked at my math scores. (laughs) And she was very much of the opinion that I should not try to be a scientist or a mathematician. And she was right. You came to Carolina, journalism major. Yeah, I had worked on my high school newspaper, and actually I won South Carolina Press Association scholarship. Oh, okay. uh, Which enabled me to come to college. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to. And uh, my last summer after graduating from high school, before I came to Carolina, I worked on my local newspaper, the Rock Hill Evening Herald, quite a leading little newspaper in uh, in the community Um, during the civil rights era. For example, the editor frequently had crosses burned on his lawn because his editorials were a little too friendly toward the civil rights movement. And during the civil rights movement, there was an awful lot people think about Charleston or Columbia, but awful lot happening at Rock Hill. Freedom Riders, Friendship College, the beginning of the sit-ins. So anything that was not attacking the demonstrators would have been considered unfriendly <laughs> That's right. by, by some folks who were local. That's right. But it gave me a, a real lesson in what newspapers can accomplish and what people can accomplish, how people do change over over the long haul and with enlightened leadership. And you came to Carolina to work on the Gamecock? I did, but I also worked on the Columbia, uh, the state and the Columbia record. Um, Oh, okay. Different times in my college career, uh, covering sports mostly for those two newspapers. I became sports editor of the uh, Columbia record actually my senior year in college. The second semester I'd completed most of my classwork. I'd gotten my credits out of the way. And uh, the newspaper lost their sports editor, and I filled in for a couple of months as a sports editor of a 30,000 daily newspaper. Wow. Okay. All right. And then, like almost all young men in those days, there still was a draft, and you'd gone through Air Force ROTC? Right. But first, I had won a fellowship, um, South Carolina Rotary Fellowship, to study in France for a year. So I got the Air Force, I, I got commissioned as a second lieutenant, and I got the Air Force to delay my starting my Air Force career for a year while I took advantage of this very nice fellowship. So I spent a year in France learning French, and then the Air Force, in its wisdom, said, okay, we're going to send you to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's when I decided, well, I'm not sure I want to stay in the Air Force, uh, given the lack of rationality of that decision. Well, y- your career is almost like Burr Rep in the Briar Patch. You got to Europe in 1961. You stayed there for another three years. When you finished with the Air Force, then you went to work for the Times International in Paris. Right. Walked in there, and uh, again, um, it's funny how life links up in, in many ways. The sports editor of the international edition of the New York Times, which had just started publishing in Paris about eight, nine months before, had suddenly quit. And the editor was looking for somebody who could speak French, which I could, who knew about sports, which I did, and who would work cheap, which I would. (laughs) And so uh, I was lucky enough to land that job. 
the international edition, that really was covering American sports for American readers. You weren't dealing with cricket and rugby and... Uh, not much, uh, although um, we did have, we eventually did have a uh, one of the world's best soccer writers. So uh, we did cover uh, soccer. Okay. I'm just thinking in, in the space of 10 years graduating from Rock Hill High School, you're, you're in Europe and you're the sports editor of the international edition of the, of the New York Times. What do the folks back home say? <laughs> Well, they, they kind of wondered what the devil I was up to, to tell you the truth. Aren't you coming home yet? So, of course, my mother was always saying that. But I had a lot of explaining to do. Uh, how did that happen? Uh, what was I doing? Uh, and what was I? why was I associating with New Yorkers? Um, French, they didn't mind so much. But <laughs> the idea that I was working for a New York newspaper... Rub some people the wrong way. Yeah, especially the Times. Yeah, especially the Times. <laughs> so you, you solved that problem by going to work for the Washington Post. <laughs> Indeed. In 1960, well, in 65, December of 65, I was back in Washington and went to see a friend, the brother of a friend of mine from Paris, who worked at the Washington Post. And he said to me, you ought to meet this guy named Ben Bradley, who had just taken over the paper. Uh, and I said, I'm not interested in the job. I'm not here looking for a job. He said, go meet him. I talked to Ben Bradley for 10 minutes. He offered me a job, and I took it. Okay. That's the kind of man Ben Bradley was. All right. And then for the next two decades, you literally were all over the world. Uh, a lot of it. A lot of that time. I did spend time in Washington. I came back for uh, two years uh, and then went to Africa. Now, now, let's talk about the African experience because that—, that was your first Pulitzer was covering the, the turmoil in South Africa. You'd grown up in a segregated world, and then you went to a world where we talk about apartheid. It really was an ironclad social setting. And how long were you there? Well, I was based in Nairobi, Kenya, and we had had a correspondent um, who w was able to get into South Africa in the middle 60s, but then he was banned. And so I got a visa to go for a limited period of time, six weeks it was, out of Nairobi to cover their election, the, the national uh, election. And that was the reason they gave me the visa. So I got there. I wrote one story about the national election, which produced the predictable result of the national party, which was the Afrikaner white party uh, winning the election since blacks couldn't vote. And I didn't file any other stories because I knew that if I did, I was likely to get kicked out. So I just went around for six weeks, taking notes, doing my reporting, came out, wrote a 10-part series, and they declared me uh, persona non grata. They wouldn't let me back in the country. You wrote a 10-part series. Now, given the way South Africa operated in those days, were they keeping an eye on you? South Africans? Mm -hmm. Of course. The security services? Yeah. They were, but like uh, most dictatorships, it wasn't quite a dictatorship, certainly not for the white population, but for the black population, it was pretty close uh, to being a dictatorship. It was The system was tempered by bad timing and stupidity on the part. They, they just had so many people to watch, they couldn't keep up with everybody. So you had a good chance of being able to get around and go to the Shabins, which were the kind of uh, nightclubs, uh, but that's a grand expression to use for such small little places where they'd serve whiskey. And you could get around the townships. You could go and talk to people and find out what was going on anyway. I mean, that's what journalists have and to do. And the Shabines, these would be like um, the clubs outside Rock Hill, small places where the locals would go. Yeah, yeah. Black was, and white? Black, on, black, black on, only. Yeah. Black only. It was illegal to go, for a white person to go. Okay. So I had to get smuggled in and talk to people and... Uh, but you, you, you could get a good sense of, uh, of what was going on. I mean, S South Africans, both white and black, are very engaging people. They like to talk. 
They're a journalist's dream, actually. You just go and you open up your notebooks, and pretty soon they're filled up. Well, in that 10-part series, did was there a theme where you're talking about the potential decline of the Africana state, in essence? Or yeah. I framed it pretty much as what are the what are the forces that are working to reinforce the status quo and what are the forces for change? Mm-hmm. And so I did, I mean, but I, but I certainly wanted to humanize it, not present some abstract theories. So I found ways to illustrate my conclusions to those two questions throughout the 10-part series. Okay. Uh, the government clearly didn't like it, as I say, I think they they really didn't like it when it was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) And uh, they wouldn't give me another visa until 1976 when the ambassador in Washington, the South African ambassador, went to our foreign editor and said, we're really changing, you know. You should send somebody. And my foreign editor was smart enough to quickly say, you won't let the only person who can judge whether there's any change, you won't let him back in the country. So they gave me a new visa. I went again. I wrote one story, spent six weeks, wrote a 10-part series, and was declared persona non grata (laughs) once again. (laughs) So South Africa's played a a big role in in my life. And you made the point that it must have looked familiar to me because I grew up in a segregated society, and that's absolutely right. And as... Uh, I watched what the South African whites were doing. It it really bothered me because I saw them refusing to learn from the experiences of South Carolina and the southern United States where there was beginning to be change and primarily change through enlightened local leadership, men like Governor Bob McNair, mm-hmm. Senator Fritz Hollings, Uh, and others who understood the times were changing and led people to uh, take a new path. And the South Africans stubbornly resisted. They eventually did it in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. You have to give them credit for that. Mm -hmm. But it was upsetting to me to see things that looked so familiar uh, and which had not had great results for the South. The problem was the whites did not liber- did not realize that they needed to liberate themselves as well as the rest of the population. But that's what eventually happened. Well, going back to South Carolina and the famous speech that businessman industrialist Charles Daniel did at the, gave at the Watermelon Festival in the ni- late 1960s, he said, we're only as strong as the weakest link. You know, segregation's got to go. And that was as much of a bombshell as what the politicians were saying. Right. But things did change eventually in South Africa. And the business community played a big role in that. Yeah. So after being in Nairobi, you did the Middle East. You were back in Paris. You're fluent in French. Anything else? No, I learned a little German and a little Swahili, but I'm, I'm not, and a little Arabic, but not, not anything to brag about. But, you know, obviously the, the European press world thinks a lot of you. And for our listeners, Jim is, has won several European awards, one early in this century, in the 21st century, where the major European publications like the London Times and Die Welt in Germany gave him an award for promoting American-European uh, relations, or at least Americans' understanding of, of Europe. Uh, and the French uh, made you a chevalier of their court of honor. So, again, this young man from Rock Hill <laughs> rubbing shoulders with the not just the rich and the famous, but with the folks who make things happen. So, after Africa, the Middle East, you covered the first Gulf War. How did that go? Well, uh, I had developed a particular interest in Iraq. Um, and interviewed Saddam Hussein in uh, 1975. Uh, I I later learned from one of his henchmen that uh, he wanted to see me because he was convinced that I must work for the CIA to get all the information that I had assembled, which was not true. But that's the reason he granted me an interview. And it was like sitting across the desk from a boa constrictor. 
a coiled, sitting across the desk from coiled violence uh, when you interviewed Saddam Hussein. But uh, the Middle East was was a fascinating um, and continues to be a major news story, of course. And I wouldn't say things have gotten better. Uh, on the contrary, but it's uh, you know it's a fascinating civilization, our collection of civilizations. It's not just a collection of civilizations. It's uh, where folks sitting down around a table at a so-called peace conference and thereafter decide to divide up the world the way they'd like to have it and then create artificial states. After World War One, Europeans decided with the demise of the Ottoman Empire that they would carve up territory for their own interests and create artificial states. Iraq, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, they're all artificial and they were all designed to suit the interests primarily of England and France. That's true. That's true. And and we're paying the, the price for that even today. Um, the Kurds, for example, are the largest uh, minority group without a state of their own, uh, although they're tending in that direction now, I think. They've certainly established uh, autonomy in northern Iraq. But then, of course, they also spill over into Syria and certainly Turkey that's not very happy about the Kurds having an independent. It has been a major impediment to trying to do anything about Syria is because the Turks play a double game. Uh, their number one priority is to keep the Kurds down. It's not to defeat ISIS. So um, they can be very unhelpful at times. And that's one of the many topics you've tackled in your commentary over the years uh, because after being international reporter, news editor, foreign news editor, then you came back and began to write a regular column, primarily on foreign affairs. And you witnessed firsthand or, or talked about Gorbachev and the demise of the Soviet Union. Let's, let's recap a little bit of that. Well, those were um, columns written essentially in 1990 at a period when people thought that, um, and certainly the U.S. government, um, the George H.W. Bush administration, thought that Gorbachev could succeed with his reforms of communism and hold the Soviet Union together. And I started writing early in 80, or in 89, and then again in 90, about how Gorbachev's reforms would not work, uh, and spelled out my reasons for concluding that. All right, let's, let's talk about your reasons as to why that wouldn't work. Well, um, he didn't have a popular mandate to undertake the kind of reforms that he had in mind. He wanted to maintain a party domination, a system where the Communist Party would still rule. But at the same time, he saw that the economy was failing and he would take some economic steps, but he wouldn't go all the way. He wouldn't go far enough to build support, real support for democracy. And we still suffer from that today too, by the way, that uh, he didn't uh, try to establish a, a functioning multi-party democracy when he had the opportunity. And then it just got too late. He had lost control, he'd lost the army, he'd lost the people. Gorbachev in many ways was visionary. When he came to power in 1985, uh, and Margaret Thatcher famously said, this is a man we can do business with, he did understand much better than any Soviet leader had up to that point, the weaknesses of the system. But he didn't understand how deep those weaknesses were and how dangerous they were at that point. And he thought he had plenty of time to play it out, and he didn't. And, and of course, there was the attempted coup, and then Boris Yeltsin didn't do much to create democracy either. No, he didn't. It was not on the top of his list either. And so now we're where we are today. With Vladimir Putin, uh, whom you have to give some credit for being a rather cagey guy. Uh, I've uh, had the chance to question him in meetings three times. And the lasting impression he leaves on me is that he is a very vain, petulant person who is out for number one, who is out for Vladimir Putin. 
So you've interviewed him three times over what period of time? I mean, About 12 years. So again, you've been in the room with the man. I, I have. I have. I've had a chance. That's not always, um, by the way, a recipe for figuring out who these people are and what they will really do. Uh, some people are quite good at uh, putting up what the French call langue de bois, a, a wooden tongue, speaking <laughs> jargon at you and hiding their real intentions. So I don't say that uh, you can always read everybody, but a man like Putin you can read uh, pretty quickly. And Saddam. And Saddam. Uh, I mean, that, that description of his being a bore constrictor, ready to strike, is <laughs> <laughs> pretty chilling. He was, uh, he was incredible. Well, the Arab Spring. Great disappointment. Uh, what started in Tunisia by the action of a man who simply wanted to sell his oranges and vegetables. And the police, because he wouldn't pay them bribes, made his life hell. And so he set himself on fire and created an uprising. Tunisians uh, are very friendly people by and large, but uh, they had had enough. And their system was just open enough so that they could see an alternative. They could see a different future. And so they created the uprising. Uh, and we started writing about it as an Arab Spring. I used the phrase myself. And an Egyptian friend of mine said to me right away, he said, shouldn't use that phrase. We don't have spring in the Arab world. We have summer all year round hmm. <laughs> with the heat. Uh, it's not a good analogy. And it's um, for various and sundry reasons, it'll take us a, a good while to list. Democracy has not taken root in the important countries there. Tunisia is doing better than anybody else at this point. Well, Libya, Egypt, it's, it's been interesting to, as a student of history, and uh, back as an undergraduate at Davidson, Arthur Link, who was the great history historian of Woodrow Wilson, uh, all I could think about is this is Wilsonian democracy. We'll make the world safe for democracy that it didn't really work after World War One either. Right. Right. I mean, you, you've been there, Jim. You can't really make people be democratic. That's true. And, and I think that something that's lost sight of frequently is that what we're witnessing in the Arab world is really a tremendous backlash of Arab society against globalization, against the intrusion so deeply into their society of the West of American uh, media, of American technology, of American goods, uh, but most of all of uh, American and European ideas about how society should be organized. And you have in country after country, you have the patriarchal society uh, rebelling against the idea that they have to change, that women should be given certain rights which women should be given equality. That idea has not gone down very well with those in the Arab culture who don't want change. And so it becomes a, a broad movement. It becomes a, a, a difficult um, thing to get a handle on. And it's expressed through jihadist warfare, jihadist terrorism. But it really is much more of an Arab social problem than it is any specific religious problem. In this country, we have never had a female president. In the Islamic world, in Pakistan, you have had female leaders. So, as you say, it's a social issue, and it's particularly an Arab issue, not necessarily an Islamic one. Right. Right. And you, you've had uh, female leaders elsewhere in the Islamic world. That's true. Yeah. Jim, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Rock Hill native and two-time Pulitzer winner Jim Hoagland about his career and his views on the world as he has seen it through his column. So, Jim, back to the Arab world. Somewhere I read a quote, and this goes back. This is 2001 disregards the war on terror, and this is a direct quote, 
The United States is engaged in a shadow war that must now be the central priority for this president and his administration for every day of his term. That was 2001. Still true. Hmm. Alas, it is still a problem that the president has to think about constantly. Well, given the events in, in Europe this spring, and your experience both with Europeans and with the Middle East, how can you deal with this, this war on terror? With strategic patience. You have to be quite patient in uh, reflecting on the balances you have to establish between civil liberties and surveillance of dangerous people. And these jihadists are very dangerous. Although... Uh, We probably have overreacted to some extent in some situations in in terms of taking steps that complicate life so much for Americans and affect the economy measured against the actual threat that terrorists pose, individual terrorists. Every every death is a tragedy. Every death by uh, violent means is, is... even more of a tragedy, and certainly one that is inspired by the hatred that these killers seem to harbor toward Americans and Europeans. Those are terrible things. But society has to continue. Society has to find ways to uh, live your life without inordinate fear, without inordinate reaction to uh, the challenges that we face. Uh, Sometimes we don't pay enough attention. I think when President Obama said that uh, ISIS is just the JV for for al-Qaeda, he had to been responding to what his intelligence agencies were were telling him, at least I hope so, and they got it wrong. ISIS was much more of a danger than, than we realized. So we have to do a better job Uh, particularly with intelligence and with analysis of that intelligence and with uh, then responding to the dangers that we can discern. Obviously, it's a little bit different here in this country than it is in Europe where you have particularly, you know, everybody's been examining Belgium and how those Arab communities were basically isolated and allowed to to fester uh, for decades and then not very good police work or not very good intelligence work. Well, in in Belgium's case, it was appalling police work and appalling intelligence work. The Belgians do not have a strong national security system. The Belgians don't really have a strong nationalism, as we understand that word. They define themselves primarily by who they're not. Uh, the uh, Dutch, the Flemish-speaking part of the population is not French, and the French are not the others. Uh, And that's not a very satisfactory way to run your country, I think, and to be so divided. Another artificial creation, that, that of course, after at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, created Belgium, an artificial country. Yeah, so that the Dutch wouldn't have it and the French wouldn't have it. Exactly right. Those usually do not produce happy situations. But what, um, what's really fascinating, I think, about this particular aspect of it is that we now face a generation of young, basically Arab, North African and Middle Eastern uh, children of parents who left their countries, who came to France from Morocco, Algeria, and who don't fit in there, they don't fit in in terms of being accepted by French society or Belgian society. They have lived in these isolated ghettos. Uh, But they don't fit in in Morocco either, or in their parents' home country. And they don't fit in in terms of the values of their parents and the mores, the manners uh, that their parents try to uh, instruct them in. So they're, they're misfits. They don't fit, and they become terrorists out of the frustrations of that kind of life. Probably when you started out in the 1960s, the Mediterranean would have been a real border, the Mediterranean Sea. Now, I mean, the immigrant problem, everybody knows about Greece, 
But how, how can Europe fence itself off? How can it possibly? How does Europe solve that problem? They're trying right now to buy their way out by giving Turkey big cash payment and insisting that the Turks take back the refugees. Don't know how successful that will be. I suspect the Turks will gladly take the money, but we'll see if the refugees actually stay put yeah. when they go back. Well, how, but, but I mean, as, as close as, as Turkey and Greece are, and Greece is, can hardly take care of itself. Right. How can they stop, you know, again, it's like folks smuggling whiskey into South Carolina during Prohibition with all of the bays and creeks and inlets. There was no possible way to police it. Same thing was true on the Gulf Coast. You know, folks used to talk about who was smuggling into Fly Creek or into Fowl River or Dog River and what have you like that. I mean, if you just look at the map, you wonder, yeah, they'll pay the Turks a lot of money, but how are the Turks going to keep them from going across the water in the first place? Yeah, it, it's it's going to be a messy period. Uh, I mean, we haven't done a hell of a lot better, I have to say. Uh, I guess we've done somewhat better in terms of establishing some kind of systematic approach to letting people who want to come here for economic opportunities come to the United States. But still, this is the reason that uh, there's been such reaction in this election campaign um, to the idea of building a wall and shutting out people who sneak across the border. But that's only one border. The longer borders, they're not talking about fencing that one off. Exactly. Quite a while back, before yours and mine's time, Franklin D. Roosevelt um, was in Constitutional Hall, which is the big building that owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution, and he addressed the group by saying, descendants, all of us are descendants of immigrants, basically, which was to get a message across, we are, some more recently than, than others. But you might be a descendant of the Mayflower, but uh, you can only go back to 1620. Right. right. And it, it wasn't until after World War I that we began to close our borders. Well, for Orientals, we had started a little bit earlier. And, I and, think part of the answer to a new approach lies in trying to make life more viable for people to stay where they are. And for a long period during the Cold War, we built our foreign aid approach on keeping countries from going communist, from going over to the Soviet side. We need a new concept of foreign aid, which is essentially that we provide money to countries like Turkey in a systematic way, not as a bribe, um, and to North African countries, African countries, uh, on the basis that they will do more for their populations rather than steal it, um, and people will have an opportunity at home so they don't have to do this. I mean, clearly people... Now, Syria is another question and how you deal with that. Uh, that's not a question at this point for foreign aid because they are fleeing death and destruction. But I think we could do a lot more in terms of conceptualizing foreign aid uh, from Europe and from the United States and from China um, and Japan as an effort to keep people where they are. When you said they don't steal the money and they give the money, make sure the money goes to the programs. And I'm sure over the years you, you dealt with Americans who were involved in USAID and, and other things. And one of their frustrations, many, and I, in Vietnam, dealing with USAID, and they would be frustrated with what the Vietnamese did not do with right. Right. the foreign aid. So, gosh, I wish it would happen. <laughs> Well, I'm trying to put a uh, slightly more hopeful cast, perhaps, on uh, events. Because what we've got right now, Walter, is this 30-year period since the end of the Cold War has been one of globalization, of the fading of national borders, and a tremendous movement of people, of goods, of ideas, of money across fading national borders. 
And people in America and in Europe in particular don't like the results that they've seen. And so therefore, candidates who go out and talk about shutting out uh, migrants, shutting out uh, foreign goods, the, you know, we've, we've got to do some things to deal with that sentiment as well. All over Europe, including in the Nordic democracies, which are supposed to be the most among the most open, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Norway, you are seeing a, a rise of, they're calling themselves national national parties, actually sometimes using the name like Finlandia. They're, they're using the country's name as their party, but it, it is very much an anti-immigrant uh, group. And, of course, right now you've got how many million that came in this last year in Europe? Most of them in Germany. Right. right. Over a million. Over a million. That is the most surprising piece of this big puzzle for me is the reaction in the uh, Scandinavian countries. Uh, because people there live very well. Uh, they're generally quite tolerant, quite open-minded. And I'm not quite sure. It's, it's easy to understand why a country like Hungary or even Poland so recently freed from Soviet domination would feel nationalistic, would feel suspicious about foreign influences. I don't quite understand why it's gone as far as it has in the Scandinavian countries. I was just thinking, having having dealt with European academics for the last 30 years and meetings in Denmark and what have you, particularly go to a city like Copenhagen, you walk down the street and you will see literally people of all colors. Doing a touristy thing, I took a water taxi, and the two guides spoke Danish, English, yeah. German, French. Uh, I don't know what their original nationality might happen to be, but they were they were Europeanized, and the Danish scholars were fascinated with the story of African American history, African American literature, African American culture. So, as you're saying now. In, in those places, there's a reaction against people who are different. Right. Again, I think it's part of this uh, general global phenomenon of backlash, of reacting to 30 years of free movements and technological changes of instant communications and learning more about the world than you may have wanted to know. Well, let's talk about those communications. When you started work as a newspaper man in 1964, teletypes were still the rage. <laughs> I'm not even sure that a lot of our younger listeners out there would know what a teletype machine is. Talk about the impact that personally you have witnessed in terms of reporting and that kind of thing. I bet you if you had modern technology and you were back in South Africa, you, would, you could have secretly done your stories and sent a blog out, right? Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Um, I mean, they we're always involved in a race between getting the word out and surveillance and, and what, the, what an oppressive state can do to block you from doing that. Uh, again, my strategy was one to prolong my amount of time in the country so I could learn more so I could do more reporting, because I figured I, I was only going to get one shot. Well, see, I, I guess that is one of the things that has changed, is now everybody wants the story instantly. That's right. I wonder if I would be allowed or would be able to do that today. I'm not sure I would. And when you look at, uh, when you look at the, the fact that big newspapers now uh, by and large, have reduced their foreign coverage because of the expenses involved. Um, I, I, every day I wake up and think I lived in the golden age of foreign corresponding where newspapers had the ability to let you do that, to let you go six weeks without filing and trust that you would have something worth that kind of investment of time and energy. It's a much more instantaneous game today. A lot of times, instant reporting is not always exactly what happens. 
A friend of mine who started out as a reporter for a wire service, the Associated Press or United Press International, and who had to file a story every hour or so, every hour and a half during an eight-hour news cycle, now works for the New York Times. And he's been through the period that I went through of where you might file one story a day or you could file maybe three or four stories, long ones, over the course of a week. But now he has to file stories for the Internet, file stories for the newspaper edition, do video. He said it's just like working for the wire services again, where he's got to constantly produce. And as you were saying, that doesn't always contribute to your best quality. There's more news than ever, but I'm not sure it's better than ever. What about there's a lot of noise? There is a lot of noise. There um, is a lot of noise. Let's talk about what you and Kathleen Parker are going to be. You're going to be taping an interview for South Carolina ETV on, on commentary. What are you all going to talk about? <laughs> well, I guess we got to define what the beast is to begin <laughs> with, uh, to, to um, draw a line between the the three great baskets, if you will, of copy, of newspaper copy, are reporting, which is supposed to be the first rough draft of history to get it as right as you can in the space of time and of space that you have, and to keep your opinion out of it. The second is analysis which uh, it does not depend on the topicality, the fact that something happened yesterday. It depends on can you explain to us the importance of this event in some kind of historical or social context. And that's analysis. And then there's commentary where after 20 years of being paid to keep my opinions out of the Washington Post. The Washington Post said, we will now like to pay you to put your opinions in. Mm -hmm. That's commentary. Mm -hmm. And I had to then sit down and figure out what it was that I thought. What opinions did I have? Because I didn't have a lot of opinions. Mm -hmm. I'm not a very opinionated person by nature. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you'd, you'd, find in, you'd find in my columns that rather than trying to persuade people uh, of a particular point of view on most subjects, I'm trying to get them to think about the subject first of all uh, and maybe come to their own conclusions, but I want to lead them in a path where I think they reach the right conclusions. Uh, but I tend not to preach in my columns. Not all my colleagues agree with me on, on that. So those are the three big baskets, the three big uh, essential differences. And commentary is, uh, is a fascinating world. It's uh, where you do get to give your opinion, but you've got to have a reason for giving it. Why now? One of the most important questions ever about any story you read is why are they publishing this now? Or why is the senator making that speech now? Um, and, and that's one of the questions you have to answer. And... What are you going to do about it? Where is the therefore paragraph? The therefore paragraph after you've said, the president's doing a terrible job on this subject. You should say then, some point in the column, therefore this is what he should do. You have to give some sense of what you think the right approach is. Okay. You deal primarily with foreign affairs. Kathleen Parker deals with domestic issues, politics. She's not shy about about doing that. But I, I, again, I think it's interesting. We've got the two of you and Gene Robinson from Orangeburg, all national columnists. And um, I guess we need to do a statistical analysis, but I'd be willing to bet you that South Carolina on a per capita basis has produced more national commentators than any other state. I mean, seriously. It's a, it's a good observation, Walter. It really is. It reminds me a little bit of Gay Talese's excellent book on the New York Times. It's a book called The Kingdom and the Power. Mm -hmm. And Gay Talese, who worked for the New York Times uh, and is a great uh, nonfiction writer, reported in his book on the fact that the senior executives 
at the New York Times through about a 20-year or 30-year period were predominantly Southerners from North Carolina and Mississippi, by and large. Mm -hmm. And he posed the question, why would that be? Why would Southerners get to the top jobs in journalism? And his answer was, one, people of the South are people of the word. The word is very important, biblical, but also literature. But two, in a region uh, that was afflicted with a lot of poverty, and not a lot of economic progress at that time, there were two routes out. One was the military, and the other was journalism. You could get out, you could go to New York, you could go to Philadelphia, or Gene Roberts from the New York Times, who's a Southerner, wound up in Philadelphia, and get jobs. And, and uh, newspapers would hire you because you had an ability with language. And I think those two, uh, there, there's something at work, certainly in my case, in terms of journalism as a way to go national, to go nationally, um, and also respect for the word. We know how to tell a story. You said the word. I was going to be a little bit more folksy. In the, and whether I think it's, whether it's history or journalism, it's how you tell the story to get your message across You've got to have that hook. As Alfred will say off mic, he'll say, all right, you want to bring so-and-so on the show. What is the story that we're going to play for for our listeners? Because I'm not going to make up a story. Right, right. So any advice for young kids out there who are, there are still high school newspapers. The Gamecock is now a daily. Uh, well, not quite. They have a weekender, but it's, it's, it's close. Um, but the whole face of print journalism is really changing. It is, and we have to recognize that. But I think it's really important for young people to realize that the news business is not dying. Perhaps some parts of the print news world, some parts are dying, are certainly going through traumatic uh, transformations. But uh, there's uh, as much demand as ever for news and for valid, curated, authentic news that meets the judgments, meets the test of credibility and accuracy and fairness. Um, there's still a, a big market for that, and um, people should aspire to... Um, provide that kind of news and that kind of analysis and perhaps in another vein that kind of commentary. All right. Well, Jim, one of the reasons that you're here is because SC Humanities, more informally known as the Humanities Council, got a huge grant from the Pulitzer Foundation to recognize the 100th anniversary of the Pulitzer Prize. And they are helping ETV sponsor three programs on Pulitzer Prize winners from South Carolina. One is going to be the program that you and Kathleen Parker are going to tape that will air on May 5th and May 8th here in South Carolina. Then there's going to be celebrating the Charleston Post and Courier the next the following week. And then Julia Peterkin, our only novelist, our only novelist who, not our only novelist, boy, Mankin would love that. <laughs> Our only novelist to win the the Pulitzer. And by the way, when Scarlet Sister Mary came out, it was banned in some libraries. But the Rock Hill newspaper printed it serially because it was they couldn't people couldn't get it from the York County Library, but it was printed in the Rock Hill newspaper. That's in the tradition of uh, that paper um, trying to do the right thing by its readers. Okay, well. Jim Hoagland, South Carolina boy who's made good. It has been a great pleasure to have you back on the journey today. Walter, it's my pleasure.
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Jim is someone I've known for a while, and he's been on the journal a couple of times. His roots are very much in South Carolina. As he will tell you, I'm a Rock Hill boy. With that career from Rock Hill to the School of Journalism to first working for the international edition of the New York Times and then for most of his career at the Washington Post is an incredible story. And I'm glad he stopped by today to share it with us. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.